morning, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily and your Friday morning long form episode here on the podcast. Trevor Hall here, your host, with you once again for a two segment episode long form. So we got a lot to cover. Uh, first, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Integra Resources, Arizona Sonoran Copper, and Western Copper and Gold. Speaking of Western Copper and Gold, we're going to hear from CEO Paul West Sells here in a few moments. But first, we have a long discussion with Chris Temple of National Investor on a wide range of topics, including the market reaction from the Fed announcement earlier this week. We also discuss the move in the in bond yields and really this decoupling from the West and China. A huge conversation. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. If you wouldn't mind, please do leave a review of the podcast on the network you use to listen to each and every episode. It just does a, a tremendous amount of good getting in front of new investors in the commodity space, which is something we think will turn eventually. Uh, if you do have any follow-up questions for me, always feel free to shoot me an email, trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. Let's jump into my discussion with Chris Temple. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. Greetings, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is our Friday long-form episode. We're going to kick off with the first segment with a good friend, no stranger to the show. Uh, By day, he is the publisher of the National Investor Newsletter. And on Fridays, he's the co-host of the Metals Mining, (laughs) Metals, Money, and Markets podcast with Mickey Fulp. That's my old job, Chris Temple. Hey, Chris, how are you? Good, Trevor. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, it's been a little while since you and I got to connect yeah. and solve all the world's problems, or maybe create a few more. Um, so let's see what we, let's see what we can ruffle up. Uh, listen, I, I think it's I think it's appropriate to really start off with the big news from the Federal Reserve this week. A lot of people that I you know follow online and read said you know it wasn't the pivot that the investment community really wanted. But it was it was a pivot, a pivot from hawkishness to extreme hawkishness, and it actually reflected in the following minutes during Jerome Powell's presser. Uh, you know, I want to just generally let's first get your takeaways here from the Fed meeting and the announcement and the presser, and if anything really stood out to you, if you were surprised at all, or is he actually doing what, by God, he said he was going to do? You know. You, you know, of course, Trevor, that when the written minutes of the meeting and their their communique came out, the markets rejoiced briefly mm-hmm. because in those minutes were actually what everybody had been looking for, an acknowledgement by the Fed that they don't need to just blindly continue raising interest rates aggressively until they break something, that they have to acknowledge the cumulative effect, as they put it, of what they've done to date, going basically from zero to now the upper end is 4% on the federal funds rate, et cetera. So that that was expected, and it did come. And I don't think it was completely taken off the table by Powell, but Powell, keep in mind, is under enormous criticism. This moron was an arsonist for the better part of two years, created 30% of all the dollars ever created in the history of the U.S. of A., grossly overdid it, even though he said along the way that don't worry about it, this is transitory. And now he's got to play tough. Whether he means it or not, it remains to be seen fully, but now he's got to play tough. So when he came out for his press conference, he stressed, you know, that maybe we will slow down the pace of increases, but inflation has not come down yet. I'd rather err on the side of being too tight than not tight enough. And so, you know, at one point um, yesterday, Wednesday, right after the meeting, the Fed funds futures for the spring was 512, 5.12%. So we're instead of 4% or I'm sorry, 45 or 4.6%, like the Fed suggested after September's meeting, and he said this himself, we're probably going to be more like 5, all else being equal by the time the Fed does pause. And, and he said they're going to. 
but maybe a little bit higher than everybody expected. So we'll pause about 5.5% or thereabouts on a Fed funds rate next spring and then you know kind of sit back and watch and decide what to do next so yeah in 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 some total certainly in a press conference he was way more hawkish in his verbiage than what everybody had expected but i don't necessarily think that that took away from the chance that this is the last 75 basis point i will see even if the eventual peak rate is a bit higher they'll start doing 50s i think they'll start doing 50s in december yeah. personally I, I, I think the the pivotal moment really was in the presser, and I don't remember which reporter, which publication, uh, had a chance to speak and said, you know, the markets were rallying. And at that point in the press conference, the markets were rallying. And he asked Jerome Powell is if, if this is okay with him. And at that moment, the the narrative quickly changed to very hawkish when he he said. It is very premature to even talk or consider a pause. Right. And that was the moment where all hell broke loose. Uh, you know, investors got a little piece of that, uh, a little taste of what it feels like to be wrong. And, yep. and it quickly sold off. But the pause, I, I think you're right. Do we just go like month by month here? I mean, if they're so data driven, you get that lagging data every month. It's almost as if they got to wait for that data to decide what they're going to do in a couple of weeks' time. I mean, we're just kind of winging it here. Yes and no. Look, first of all, as you know, I've been a critic of the Fed. I don't think we should have a Federal Reserve. We need to get rid of it. I'm going to have a lot to say about that over the balance of the year because, Trevor, they've given us a Hobson's choice. Either, number one, we live with chronically high inflation forever, or number two, we've got to suck it up and uh, have millions of layoffs and, and, and more unemployed people and a recession in order to undo the problem that they were the biggest proximate cause of. I don't think those are the only two choices. That's a story for another day. But look, Powell, um, I, I, all year long I've said this, even though I think the Fed is about to slow down and get to the point where all else being equal, they're going to at least end their rate hikes for a while come next late winter, early spring. He's not been, as horrible as this has been to watch him, and then Lagarde at the ECB is even way worse, he's not been inconsistent on one point this year. And that is that politically, inflation and what it does to Joe Sixpack and Sally Soccer Mom is a way bigger issue now than whether the stock market drops another 15 or 20 percent. If it does it in an orderly fashion, I think Powell would be very happy if the stock market dropped another 15 or 20 percent. That's the world he lives in where your, your only way to bring inflation down is to kill demand. How do you kill demand? You cause a recession and there's less people with less money to spend. Shouldn't be that way. And again, that's a story for another day, but that's the way it is. So politically... You know, when President Biden decided to reemploy a man who had been arsonist and caused all this inflation or was the main cause of it, it was because Powell was now going to be a firefighter. Now, you've seen some of the cartoons my guy puts out. You know, maybe he's going to end up really being Fire Marshal Jay, you know, that Jim Carrey character from In Living Color where he says, let me show you something. And he blows something up or destroys something. Powell's still very capable of doing that. And and the more that they continue tightening policy, the bigger a possibility that they do break something. Not in the U.S., but elsewhere. And to me, one of the more disturbing things that he said yesterday when someone did press him on what the strong dollar is doing elsewhere, it's like, well, so what? You know, that's not my thing to worry about. It'll be his thing to worry about when, you know, Credit Suisse uh, goes bankrupt or when China implodes, or when something else like that happens. But right now he doesn't care. So, you know, I, I think Powell's mantra all year long has been politically to bring inflation down no matter what the cost, really. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, I do think that you can't completely dismiss what the Fed said in its statement, but I but I do think that, that you know, to, your, to the point of your question, it's not just going to be going forward necessarily what did the data today show, but they are going to look at what they said in the statement is that cumulative impact to date of what the rate hikes have done. And he did acknowledge 
that by some economic measures, there's starting to be some traction. Some of the ISM numbers are weakening. Real estate has hit an utter wall. I'm, I'm astounded where I live. I, I mean, you're in a high-end real estate market out where you're at, too. For every one real estate listing, Trevor, that I saw at the beginning of the summer, there's three yep. right now. Yep. And nothing's moving like it was. Nope. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, in fact, I, I, one of the things I thought about, and I, I can't remember if – I don't know if Jerome said this in the presser or if it was just kind of mentioned, but spend spend less time being concerned about the rate of hikes and start thinking about where eventually – it will end up. So let's talk about where these rate yeah, hikes. Yeah, that. okay. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, let's talk about where this ends up. I mean, with inflation at eight percent, I mean, there's obviously a <laughs> there's a target right there. We've gone up to you know four or five percent right now. In although there's stress, there's also um, some resilience. Uh, there is. So let's talk about you know how much more can this get? I mean. Would you be surprised in the next six months' time that the Fed can get up to that inflation number, assuming that inflation starts trickling down? Well, it's not trickling down much, and of course, they're using a skewed number. They're right. using a PCE deflator. One of the things I found interesting in his comments yesterday is that in September, he was adamant that he needs to get the federal funds rate and all interest rates across the whole yield curve above the rate of inflation, have positive real interest rates again before he's going to be happy. He equivocated on that substantially yesterday. Maybe not, we're, we're maybe not going to get up to that point, but if we get close, then with the cumulative effect of all the rate hikes to date, maybe the job will still get done, which among other things tells me that he's already resigned to the fact, and so is the rest of the Fed, there's no way in hell they get back down to 2% even by their skewed numbers yeah. on inflation unless they're willing to blow up the entire global economy and we have a depression. Then you'll get down to 2% for a little while, but it wouldn't stay there. So I, I think that you know his, his main point is that, again, he's trying to telegraph this as best as he can. This is a mess of his own making. You know, and now he's trying to unravel it. You know, we all thought once a time back in 2018 when he started this job, that now you got a guy who's not an you know uh, an academic policy wonk. You've got a guy who's actually operated in the markets and in the real world in Jerome Powell. So you figure, okay, maybe this guy's got a little bit more sense. But good grief, you know, you, you run you run things way to the inflation side, and then you're trying to possibly still overdo it on the other side. You know, I, I don't know where this is going to end up, but. You're right that the economy is resilient. Again, I said a minute ago, this man led the creation of 30% of all the U.S. dollars ever brought into being. So there is still a truckload of liquidity out there. There's all kinds of liquidity out there. So there is some room for him to make a mistake if you look at the at the U.S. rather, just in isolation. But before he craters the U.S. economy, if they keep this up, they're going to break something someplace else. Mm-hmm. All right, we, we've seen what's happened to the UK gilts market. We've seen what's happened in Japan. China had better get off of its lockdowns real fast, or they're going to implode because people can't even service debts. There's people that are refusing to pay mortgages over there. So you've got a country in Japan with the biggest debt to GDP ratio on a planet when you add public and private debt together, and the economy shut down. Who, who can pay their debts? So. You know, there, there's there's a lot of dangers out there, and they're exacerbated by the strong dollar, which, of course, when you've got trillions of dollars that emerging markets and other countries owe that are U.S. dollar denominated, you don't you sure don't make them any easier to pay mm-hmm. if you run up the exchange value of the dollar. But you know, so far we've we've avoided a, a major catastrophe at least to this point. It interests me to see that Evergrande's you know, the, the big Chinese real estate. Developer. I haven't heard that name in a their while. Bond, their, their dollar <laughs> bonds are now worthless in the markets. They're worthless. Yeah. I can't believe that hasn't brought down a bunch of stuff already. Huh. Well, you know, it's there again, there's cracks. There are cracks, yeah. but it, it's been pretty fascinating to, we haven't seen that windfall event yet. 
Um, and no. In fact, even we're recording this Thursday morning, and even after the sell-off yesterday, uh, the VIX is down uh, to 25. Yeah, and volatility is. is just not really here. We will see what happens Friday morning. Uh, you, well, we got that employment number coming up tomorrow morning. Too. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned China here, so let's let's pivot to China. And this has been a little bit sure. of an ongoing discussion we've had here on the pod the last couple of weeks. Um, I mean, there's a couple of news items that I thought are important to kind of hash out. Uh, well, before we get to Powell and President Biden in China, there's a news item that came out I just saw midweek this week that the government of Canada is forcing a a couple lithium companies, publicly Canadian lithium companies, to have their Chinese investors divest. Uh, This was, a, to me, a pretty damn big news because we also know that the relationship between the West and China is deteriorating, and this really seemed like another foundational move of reshoring or nearshoring in this grand narrative and, and, and transition we continue to have. Did you see that news and kind of what were your general thoughts regarding divesting Chinese uh, found, uh, foundations, divesting from Western companies? And this probably may not be the end of it. Well, I'll tell you, Trevor, I have said for quite some time now that World War Three has already started. It's going to be over commodities and currencies and who runs what in the world. So far, we have one overt proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, a second one with China. And it's not just going to be over Taiwan, but that'll be the central part of it, is is inevitable. We don't know when. President Xi pretty much promised that when he just got cemented as emperor for life. So in the midst of all of that, I've been saying to anybody who will listen, that we need, and I'm speaking more U.S.-centric, but Canada is very definitely a part of this, we need in the U.S. to embrace, re-embrace the Monroe Doctrine and understand that the America's time as the global hegemon is over. It's over. We cannot continue sending money and spilling blood and people and everything to the four corners of the globe just to continue enforcing our will. And it's not the will of the American people. It's the will of the people in a so-called deep state, whatever you want to put it. That's got to end. And to get from point A to point B is going to be tough because in the, in the name of globalization for decades, and as the U.S. has kept its global hegemony alive, we have become very dependent on China, to a great extent, on Russia, to a lesser extent, and others, for all manner of things we need to fuel the biggest economy on the planet. And that's going to hit a wall. We've seen it where Russia is concerned with key gases that they export, notably helium. As you know, one of my favorite plays is a helium play. Uh, just a week or so ago, a, a medical group in the U.S. came out and they were worried about whether we're going to have helium for MRI machines going forward, let alone for the defense and space industries for which it's needed. So that's one thing. As the Biden administration continues to press against an ascending China, we're going to see a lot more things go by the wayside. It's one thing to not get some of the stuff we were from Russia. China's a whole different kettle of fish. We're in a world of hurt. If we don't fast figure out where we're going to get processed rare earth elements, processed lithium, and a whole lot of other things. So when I saw that headline from Canada, I said, well, bully for them, because they understand, too, that the world is moving away from globalization for a host of reasons. It didn't start with Biden, but for a host of reasons, we're moving away from globalization. So I I think that the sooner that the U.S. and Canada realize that we need to worry about our own four walls, we need to worry about our hemisphere, make sure that China and, and Russia, in a couple instances, in fact, 
uh, get booted out of South America as well. They do what they want in their part of the world. We do what we want in our part of the world. You know, a lot of people have been critical of me for supposedly taking, quote, Russia's side in this fight over Ukraine and all these other kind of things. Look, I'm all for what the founding fathers said. I forget which one of them it was that said peace and, and positive commerce with all nations, but entangling alliances with none. And also what President Monroe believed that was more of a military sense, but partly economic in the you know new and rapidly growing U.S. two centuries ago. But again, a big part of the reason why there is a United States of America is to get the hell away from problems in other parts of the world. So let's, let's re-embrace that. And so I, I think it's wonderful what Canada just did. Let's talk about what President Biden's been doing. And it may not yep. be uh, a popular thought that I'm about to say. Uh, some people may cringe <laughs> at me. You know, of all his faults and things to be critical of the president about, I have to give him credit for being strategically tough with China on a number of things where, you know, obviously this move, you know, was exasperated by former president Trump, but where Trump came in sledgehammering tweets out, Biden's definitely certainly coming in with a scalpel and doing things strategically. Uh, And I know you, before the Biden presidency, you were out there and you got a lot of criticism too, that he was not going to be the China Joe that a lot of people thought he was going to be. In fact, he's turned out to be just the opposite. Very much so. You know, I, I made two big predictions about the Biden presidency. One I was wrong about that is that for all of his rhetoric, when he was running, that he was going to be middle of the road when it came to energy. He's not, he has been a disaster when it comes to our energy policy and critical mineral independence, even where green energy is concerned. That started to change for the better, less to do with him and more to do, I think, with people around him and political reality. But you're right, Trevor, and that I pushed back on this whole China Joe thing, and I said, listen, you got to remember to begin with that big money, big corporations, banks, the, the, the foreign policy careerists in Foggy Bottom and at the CIA they're the ones in the end that call the shots. I don't care if you got an R or a D after your name and you're the president. So I believe very much that Biden was going to go along with that because a decision has already been made that we cannot and will not, if it's possible, allow China to replace the U.S. as the global hegemon. Maybe down the road they'll you know, run their part of the world, you know, that, that Monroe Doctrine theme I mentioned, let them worry about their part of the world, we'll worry about the Western Hemisphere, and don't you dare come here any further. But, yeah, I mean, the Biden administration is is realizing that there are strategic and military and economic reasons why this, you know, and, and don't forget, with China, this is no different than the Soviet Union during, during World War II. The only reason they existed and survived is we made them. You know, Nixon went to China a little over 50 years ago, or just over 50 years ago, and started the biggest vendor financing scheme in the history of planet Earth, where they became the big manufacturer. Uh, they, you know, they took our paper. We took their cheap goods. That was one of the, the secular things that for a generation kept inflation down, of course, at the expense of a lot of American jobs and American manufacturing. But times have changed. We need to, we need to reclaim uh, our own destiny, our own manufacturing, our own supply chains, and all the rest of this stuff. And, and yes, Joe Biden very much, you know, whether he understands it from day to day is, is debatable. But yeah, very much so under his administration. He sure as hell isn't soft on China. No. But it also, I'm not... I, I'm not um... I, I don't think he's prepared for the follow-through and what's going to be needed on this side. I mean, we're talking, if we if we cut dependencies on China for a lot of things that we are now reliant on them for, it's going to take an incredible amount of capital expenditure to be... Oh, so, you're, we're not remotely ready. We're not remotely we're not ready. Remotely ready. And that's and that's and that's some of the downside when it comes to energy policy. I mean, here's a guy. I'll just give you one example. You know this already, but maybe some of our listeners don't. When Joe Biden was campaigning, he went to northern Minnesota and he lionized 
two major projects, one that is owned by Polymet, the other these days owned by Antofagasta, it's called Twin Metals Minnesota, two development-ready projects that have gone through the hoops for years, safety, environmental, the whole nine yards, and lionized those things saying that they're going to help us to get off of dependence from foreign countries and help us have the nickel and the copper and the cobalt and all the rest of these things we need for the green transition. He gets elected and what happens? His administration completely pulls the plug on twin metals. They've now taken Biden's administration to court and they put up new roadblocks where Polymet's project is concerned. And there's other places too where they've thrown up roadblocks. So this is where he has been double-minded because we all know or should understand that to produce the things that we need for this green transition, which I favor personally, I, I think we do need to do some of these things, but you don't do it by killing the ability of our own country to produce these things. We may not get all of it from Canada or South America, and we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So I hope that if you know, the, the, most of the polls are correct and we get a different makeup in Congress that they're going to at least limit the damage that the president has done to this part of things and start to get serious about, and like they have been, for example, with uranium. You follow that as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've been less bad about that than everything else. We're starting to see some percolation of a revival of our domestic uranium industry to get off of dependence on on Russia in that particular case. I hope we're going to see some of these same things go through when it comes to green energy. There's been glimmers recently. You know, Piedmont, one of my great picks of the last couple or three years, they got some of this infrastructure money to build one of their initial plants, several other green energy and battery metals and gigafactory type uh, projects have gotten some initial funding. It's a pimple on a flea compared to what's needed, right. but it's a start. But I don't understand why these three projects would get hundreds of millions of dollars and in, in federal funding, while the other you know three projects you listed before basically you know get the fence line around it. It it just it's just it doesn't make any sense as an outsider looking no. in at all. Um, but you know, I I gotta say, you know, he he doesn't deserve all the credit for being the toughest person on the commodity front. Uh, we just mentioned before, Jay Powell, with his oh. with his tightening, he has just done a tremendous amount of damage in the commodity space as far as as putting bring being having the ability to finance new projects. You know, I've said this a number of times. I'll say it again. I'm glad that you reminded me. I might have forgotten about it. But the the harm that this nitwit has done. If I was a leftist and all rah-rah, you know, I want green energy. I want to get rid of fossil fuels. And, you know, I understand that at least to some extent we've got to have development of battery metals until we can recycle more and stuff like that. I would be livid because what he has done with monetary policy is to discourage anybody who would step up and fund these things. Because, you know, folks, when you have, you make a, let's say you make a copper discovery, all right, and you go through all of the hoops, you spend lots of time, lots of money, many years, lawyers, geologists, engineers, the whole nine yards. Now you've got X number million pounds of copper. You're ready to develop it. You got your, your PFS. You got all of your bankable environmental studies out. At today's numbers, two things have happened, thanks to Jerome Powell causing all of the inflation and costs that we've had, and now threatening to undo it in such a dramatic fashion. We have another 2008 kind of bust. All right, all your initial costs for capex and stuff have gone up, so that has hurt the economics of things. And now, when we don't know if this guy is going to pull out one too many sticks from his game of monetary Jenga and collapse everything. We don't know where commodities are going to be for the near term. Yeah, you might look 15, 20 years down the road, and if you've got half a brain and you look at the numbers, you say, yeah, copper's got to be five, six, eight dollars a pound down the road to, to, to meet the demand for what needs to come out and, to, and so that miners of, of copper can, can get you know a, a decent profit so that they can afford to operate. But nearer term, you don't know, thanks to this nitwit, whether in the next couple or three years, copper is going to be $5 a pound or two. 
so you've you've completely discouraged investment banks, mining majors, and everybody else who might be willing to step up and finance the resources that we need to get off of dependence on China and all the rest of this stuff. That is one of the consequences talked about the least, but which we are going to pay the dearest price for for years to come. Why why invest in a project if all you're hearing is recession in 2023? That too. And then on top <laughs> and then on top of that, you know, I've seen people talk about even depression coming. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of fear out there. Uh I'm not I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I definitely I hope Trevor I hope Trevor that what this gives rise to, you're going to see some stuff from me in the coming weeks. And folks, keep up with me on this because this is you're not going to see anything, if I may say, more important policy-wise than what I'm going to put out between now and the end of the year on the Federal Reserve itself and what needs to be done. Because I don't believe we have to be forced to live in this Hobson's choice of a world where either we have chronically high inflation, as you know, for the rest of our lives, or to get that under control, we've got to have high unemployment and a depression. There's other alternatives, right? The Fed doesn't want to tell you about them because it doesn't include them. Right. But there are other alternatives. And there's a lot of people starting to talk about them in different ways. I'll be one of them. Well, there's the idea of what the U.S. did after World War II. You know, Russell Napier had written about it with financial repression regarding inflating the debt away while also uh, increasing GDP and directing investment dollars. So maybe that's kind of what you're, you're getting more. Okay. I thought it's, getting <laughs> we're, we're getting there. All right. All right. Oh, I can't wait. can't wait to read that. We'll have to follow up with that. Um, but l- let's talk about something you just did publish. You put your, your big gold, uh, letter out, um, still titled, not your father's gold market. Uh, it continues for the last couple of years to not be your father's gold market that's here, right. Chris. Um, so maybe before we kind of dive into anything new that was was put into the publication, let's just talk a general sense of, of gold here. You know, you can argue that gold is outperforming the rest of the market other than maybe energy. It's only down about 7 or 8% uh, on the year as well. Everything else has just uh, been in the trash. But it's still, it's not really catching the bid. It's It's hard to come by. However, if you look between the lines and a few... A few headlines you're not going to see very often is actually central bankers are big buyers of physical physical gold lately. I don't know if that's perking your interest, yeah. how you feel about gold right now. Me, as you know, I'm incredibly bullish. I don't know the timing, but I know this thing is going to – I'm going to be glad I own physical gold and gold equities eventually. <laughs> Well, I'm very bullish long-term on gold. There, there's, there's, you know, the, the two audiences I speak to in this in this publication, Trevor. First of all, for those who are in our audience that have been victims of the guys I call the Pied Pipers, the Gold Bug Echo Chamber, this is deprogramming. This is to help you separate fact from fiction. You know, we're not going to have a new IMF currency. We're not going to have Biden bucks and all of these other scams that you're hearing about out there recently. There are sensible reasons why. You should be bullish on gold and understand how and why to invest in it. And it has nothing to do with some of the nonsensical come-ons that are out there. For generalist investors who are going to be the ones that drive the next bull market, just as they did, don't forget, from the bottom of the market in 2008 when gold was $670 an ounce, it tripled in under three years. And it wasn't because the Pied Pipers were shilling it. It wasn't because gold bugs were buying. They're always 100% invested. They got no new money to put in to the gold space. It was because there was a narrative that the investing masses were able to embrace that said, yes, I need to be part of this. We're on the edge of that. And I explain why in my updated issue, this is not your father's gold market, why we're on the edge of that and what factors need to take place to have the next big move up in the gold price. And I, for the first time recently in quite a while, since we had a peak of a little over 2,000 an ounce in the summer of 2020, um, and, and then a- actually since then, we've had two peaks of mm-hmm. over 2,000 an ounce. When we got to each of those places, I told people to sell our trading positions, but we just started adding them back. And 
even though they got dinged a little bit given the in the wake of the Fed yesterday, I think I'm still generally correct and will probably be incrementally adding to those. So I give all the whys and wherefores of why you should be interested in gold as well as silver. We talk about silver in it and several examples of companies on my recommended list right now. So you're starting to wade back into the waters. A bit, yes. Yeah. yeah. And again, the reason being, and I'll give half of it away, you know, a lot of these Again, they're the Pied Pipers of the Gold Buck echo, Bug Echo Chamber that are always saying, well, high inflation is going to give us $5,000 gold, and when it doesn't give get to 5000 it's the fault of some conspirators or space aliens or somebody else that they're wrong. But go back to 2008 and look at the landscape back then and ask yourself, what for the next couple or three years caused people that didn't have an interest in gold prior to be interested? And that was we had a badly broken economy. We had just had a financial collapse. The Fed was printing all kinds of money. And yet it was apparent that that, all of that money printing and the unveiling of quantitative easing by Ben Bernanke was going to have little to no traction for a while in the markets, in the economy, in real estate, and to inflate any of these bubbles. Okay, And that was why people came to the logical conclusion back then that it's time to be in precious metals because given all these other things, they will disproportionately benefit from all of that monetary inflation. And they did. So we're not at the point yet where the average investor understands that for many years ahead of us, the best we're going to have is stagflation. The best we're going to have. The economy is bogging down. You know, the 60-40 portfolio that a lot of passive investors, you know, regular investors, you go 60% stocks, 40% bonds. For most of the last 40 years, the Fed had your back and you close your eyes and it works. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work anymore. All right. All of the fads, the Reddit stocks, the meme stocks, the cryptocurrencies, you know, the the bloom is off all of those roses. The economy is going to bog down. If we're lucky, we avoid a major global bust but we're still facing an economy that's bogging down. And especially when at some point the Fed gets to the realization itself or is forced into it by another bust that they've gone too far or they can't go any further. And now they've got to not only stop raising rates, but at some point inevitably relax policy further. And yet it won't have any help. It won't give any help to the economy because it's already busted and it's going to be for a while that's when the precious metals get going again. This time around, unlike 2008 and 9, you've got a lot of secular and supply issues that are going to allow other commodities to go up with gold and silver. So for years, a lot of us have used these charts. You've seen them, I know, Trevor, where it shows these big zigzags, you know, for one minute, Commodities are overpriced and financial assets in are, are in the dumps. The next minute it's reversed. Financial assets are overpriced. Commodities are in the dumps. It, it's never been as extreme mm-hmm. as it's been in the recent past. But I'm here to tell you that finally, for some years ahead of us, we are going to see commodities broadly outperform financial assets. And inev- inevitably, commodity stocks will follow along too. So for all the long-suffering people who've gotten their brains kicked in again in the recent past with these kind of things, there's there's a dawn coming. Uh, one last question. And you mentioned that 60-40 historic portfolio. Yeah. I mean, I I would say maybe that's inverting uh, drastically to, you know, not 60-40 bonds to equity, but maybe like 80-20 or maybe even 90-10 for maybe midterm. And I just say that because I'm actually uh, reallocating funds for my 401k. And so I've had to (laughs) go through a lot of paperwork and get some ideas of what I'm doing. And Chris, I'll be honest with you and get your thoughts here. Like I'm looking at some of these mutual funds that focus in bonds and high yielding bonds. They're getting 7%. Right. And I'm almost like, that's pretty good. Now, Two years ago, it wasn't going to be seven percent. No, but do you start seeing do you start seeing traction back into the bond market here? Growing demand and maybe increasing and in, in improving liquidity. Not yet. Not yet. 
two reasons. One is, and I'll, I'll get to your example of the high yield slash corporate bonds in a minute, but I think even where government bonds are concerned, unless Powell does cause a systemic crisis of liquidity with this hawkishness and these rate rises and they have to lurch back in the other direction, I do believe them and I think that it's likely that when they get up to four and a half or five percent or whatever the final number is, you know, early in the year, they're going to stay there and they're going to stay there for a while. And they are not going to reduce interest rates unless they're forced by events to do it. And they're going to wait a while. They've already told you in almost these words that they will tolerate a mild recession at least if that's what it takes to bring inflation down. So you're not going to have the capital gain potential, even investing in treasuries yet, that you've had on and off during the last 40 years when we've been in a downward movement Mm -hmm. rate-wise and a long-term bull market value-wise in bonds that you could trade in and out of. We've done it, made a lot of money. Okay, As far as the corporate bonds and junk bonds are concerned, for the first time in a while, don't forget, that the Fed is willing to tolerate some bankruptcies, to tolerate some more creative distraction of capitalism. So I think that if you accept the idea that we're going into a recession and that there will be some bankruptcies, there will be more companies that bite the dust, don't forget that in past cycles like that, Yield spreads between treasuries and high-yield corporate debt, or the riskiest corporate debt, blew out way more than they have so far. So I I think it's very early. In fact, one of my kind of static positions that I've got recommended in my newsletter, it's kind of a plain vanilla one. We're going to be looking at some options on a couple of bigger and more liquid ETFs that do this. Um, But I've told people to buy, just just put 5% so far, it might become more, in SJB, it's the ProShares Short High Yield Fund. Hmm. It's just a plain vanilla, unleveraged fund that bets against the whole basket, the whole universe of high yield corporate bonds. Because if we if we can avoid a major bust, and the Fed keeps raising rates, lets the economy get squeezed, lets some of the excess come off, seven percent looks good now, but in a couple of years, ten percent is going to look way better to get back into those high yield funds. Interesting. Uh, You can read everything from Chris Temple over at nationalinvestor.com. I always enjoy these conversations, Chris. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. We covered a lot of ground, (laughs) didn't we? Anytime. (laughs) All right, right, everybody. Chris Temple over there. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and we will be back with an update from Western Copper and Gold. Stay tuned. Back here, Trevor Hall and Mining Stock Daily with our second segment here. We're welcoming in Paul West Sells, CEO of Western Copper and Gold. They continue to trade on the TSX and the NYSC with the symbol WRN. Paul, uh, you've been a tough man to pin down here the last couple months. How have you been? Very good. Very good. Always uh, always happy to talk to you and, and your listeners. So uh, happy to, to, to be uh, chatting. Yeah, uh, well, I'm I'm glad we could finally find a time to get you here on the podcast. It has been a little while. We've got a couple general, you know, corporate bulletin points from the casino project you and I need to tackle. And then I also thought there's some news, uh, I guess you could call it global macro and copper news that I thought might be interesting to get your corporate editorial on as well. But let's start with casino here. Uh, I would assume that the uh, the seasonal work up at the casino project is uh, concluded. Uh, it does sound like there was quite some, at least down south in the in the Golden Triangle of British Columbia, they've gotten a lot of snow. Uh, what's the weather been like up in Yukon, and is everybody kind of wrapped up for the season at Casino? Yeah, no, everyone is, uh, you know, we wrapped up, uh, you know, essentially the end of September, beginning of October, and that, that's usually when we wrap up. And, you know, we don't get a lot of snow up in, at Casino, but it gets cold. 
and uh, you know drilling use water and and so it becomes much more challenging. So, yeah, we had a, a successful close of the season. Um, we're still waiting on on assays. I mean, if you, you know, might remember we we drilled the the deep hole, um, and you know we we got like the first half of the assays. I mean, we got those out early in the season, and then we just got slammed, uh, mm. particularly up in the Yukon. Uh, the lab we're using does all their prep actually up in Whitehorse in the Yukon, and and that just became a bottleneck. So we're we're still waiting for that. Um, but yeah, I mean the other, I mean just in terms of progress on on work, I mean the other probably big technical piece that we've um, that is just finishing up here now is uh, the Met program, and so this is really the last chunk of work that big chunk of work that we've done with Rio Tinto was was relooking at the metallurgical programs for both the uh, oxide or, or heap leach material and and the, um, the sulfide or mill material and so that work is complete uh, the report on the mill material is is been finalized and the report on the heap leach material is is sort of just in draft right now we just got that last week so mm. once that's all wrapped up um, you know, I'll, I'll, that should be a, a press release that comes out. But, you know, the short answer on that is is that the results look great. Um, you know, and it, it essentially confirms, you know, what we've been using in our feasibility study uh, in most cases. And actually, you know, depending on, on how aggressive you want to be, suggests that maybe we're being a bit conservative and that maybe mm-hmm. recoveries are a bit better. So... That's always good. Um, Rio's happy with it. We're happy with it. It's a great, great, big. It was a big program, and but uh, uh, a good piece of work. Uh, I'm going to table the discussion regarding the work with Rio Tinto for just a minute because there was one item that you put in a press release uh, not too long ago uh, regarding the uh, Executive Committee of Yukon Environmental and Socioeconomic Assessment Board. <laughs> yes, Ab, I guess you can call it. Uh, uh, says the casino needs to revise your environmental and social economic statement guidelines. Uh, and a little bit of a technical thing here. Discuss really what this is regarding. It just sounds like it's been a little bit since this was done previously. So it's just time to update. Yeah. And, and so, you know, just to take a quick step back, uh, you know, ESC statement guidelines are, are really, it's the guidelines that, for, for what you need to submit. So it says, you know, here's all the things you need to submit. It needs to look like this. And go back to 2016. We spent about four months in 2016 going through this process where, you know, the, the regulator comes up with them. It goes out for public comment. Um, we comment on it, the First Nations, you know, general public. And then they take those comments into consideration and finalize them. That was 2016. Um, like everything, uh, you know, over the past six years, there's been a change in the way that, uh, you know, best practices in terms of environmental science and the way that certain things are measured. Particularly with this one is around cumulative effects uh, and the way that cum- cumulative effects should be handled in an environmental assessment. And I'll be honest, it's, it's you know, I'm not an environmental professional, Um but you, you can just imagine that technology and the, the best practices and the ways things have done have changed over the past six years. So you, you've got best practices from 2022. You've got a legal document from 2016. They're incongruent in a bunch of areas. This is just a way to make them congruent. So, you know, they're going to take that, you know, those 2016 um Guidelines. They're going to update them for 2022. It'll go up for public comment, come back, and then we'll move forward with that. So I think two important things for people to understand. One is that we don't anticipate that this will have any impact on timelines because, of course, permitting is really like how long is this going to take? The second is that this actually puts us in a more robust starting position in terms of permitting. Um, you know, there was a number of concerns before where we're like, well, you know, we have to do it this way, but it's not, it's not the current accepted best way to do things. 
Mm-hmm. Now those two things will be congruent. We'll be following our legal you know, guidelines, which we need to follow, and those will reflect the best practices of the industry. So it's a good foundation from which you know, we'll move forward with the permitting process. Okay. Uh, you mentioned timelines, so let's talk about the big timeline here. And with respect to the work with Rio Tinto, uh, you know, when this, when this, I guess, partnership was announced as JV investment, it was, um, it, it seemed like there was like this 18 month, you know, horizon here of collaborative work. And looking back at the calendar, it seems like that 18 months is coming up here. Uh, Paul, <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Met. You mentioned the Met work uh, being in, done in conjunction with Rio Tinto, and you said that's the last kind of big step. What is next with this timeline? Now that it's approaching, if it, you know quickly, uh, what needs to be done other than the the Met testing results? How does this partnership look going forward? And I'm sure you're just getting a heap ton of these similar questions from shareholders. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, yeah, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, just, just to take a just a quick step back, just in terms of that exact why was it eighteen months? And and you're right. So that eighteen months comes due November twenty eighth, and you know, just just to remind the listener, so. Right now, there there are certain rights, you know, the board observer, technical committee, seconding people into the project. Um, all those rights are in place. They expire on the 28th of November, so that is, you know, less than four weeks away. Um, Rio has the one-time right to extend that for up to a year. But let's go back to why we set it at 18 months. We set it at 18 months because when we we dis, our discussions with Rio were around like, look, we like the project, but we need to you know we need to do some work to understand it better. This is the list of the work that we need to do. We think it's going to take about 18 months, and it, really the extension was put in because we're like, well, you know, it might take. 19 months or it might take 18 months and then you know we're talking about other things and we we don't want you know this to sort of impact things so i mean where we are right now is pretty much done and you know i mean so it's taken 18 months but it's taken exactly 18 months um so you know we'll see what happens with that extension um but I mean, the short answer is, is, you know, what's next with Rio is, is uh, under discussion. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much all I can say. But I mean, what I can, what I can say is that, you know, we're, um, the work, it's, it's been a pleasure working with them. I mean, as I said, the Met results, you know, like I said, that should be coming out here relatively soon. Very supportive of what we did in the feasibility study. I mean, the the drilling results from last year have already been published. Very supportive of uh, you know our block model and our resource estimate. Uh, you know, updated feasibility study, which has been reviewed by by Rio. You know, they're mm-hmm. you, know, you know very complimentary of that. So you know, that's that's the foundation from which we'll, we'll talk about where we're going to go. Uh, just kind of off the cuff question here paul and and i know you're going to be politically correct uh when or if you answer this but i'm just kind of curious you know obviously rio tinto is obviously another big news item from from the companies uh, trying to acquire oyu tolgoy do you feel or is is that kind of sidebar in rio's story having any sort of ramifications of how they might continue to work with casino I think, I mean, I mean, we're dealing with the same guys, right? So we're, we're dealing with the copper group, and, you know, it's obviously the copper group that, that's looking to buy, you know, Turquoise Hill, the, the controller of Oyotoloi. Um, so, I mean, where I would, you know, to be straight up, I mean, where it's impacting us is getting, you know, time from, you know, that, you know, the senior members of that group. Um, okay. But, you know, I mean, is this impacting things by months? I don't think so. It's, you know, it, it's it's more like, you know, trying to get meetings set up, which usually would take a couple of weeks is, you know, maybe taking a little bit longer. Okay, okay. Um, 
the the big kind of macro global copper outlook uh would love to get your thoughts here and this wouldn't be the first time this year we've had a little bit of a chat about where the market is is heading with copper and actually uh refiners itself i think it was a little beginning of the year we had a discussion about uh treatment charges that were being uh pressed onto uh refiners uh but the news lately mid month um, last well the, in october there was a report that Cadelco, Chile's largest copper miner, was uh, going to offer to sell copper to European buyers at a record high premium, $235 a ton. Uh, and for those of you who may not know, that's eighty-five. That's a rise of 85% from this year. Quite interesting, as we know we're trying to, that term reshoring, nearshoring, actually just getting out of Russian and Chinese metals, let's call it what it is, is having some dramatic effects of where uh, companies, including refiners, are going to get their metals here. Uh, you know, you just got back from LME week here, Paul, in London. Did you hear any similar conversations about about this exact news item? Where is copper going to come from and how does this – changing global dynamic uh, how does that affect the copper market yeah no and and i think uh you know it, it, it's very interesting and, and you know just just to expand on that premium a little bit more i mean it, it, it's interesting because people look at the lme price and the lme price and and you know that 200 that 235 dollars a ton i mean to put that in cents per pound that's around 11 cents per pound of copper um so copper right now, the LME copper price is you know three forty three fifty, but to actually buy copper from Cadelco if you're in Europe, it costs you ten cents more. So I mean, it, it's interesting that that you know this LME benchmark price is not really, you know, it's it's just like a price out there like LIBOR is an interest rate out there, right? That's mm-hmm. not actually what you're gonna. That's not necessarily what you're going to get. And, you know, I'll just remind everyone, Cadelco is the biggest copper company in the world. So when Cadelco signs something like that, it's very important. Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting being at LME Week. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it was it was my first time at LME Week, uh, you know, sort of sort of there to, to you know, meet with, uh, you know, a couple of different groups. Um, but, uh, you know, some interesting discussions. I mean, I think what came out of it for me um, first of all, I mean, LME Week is exactly that. It's all the metals. It's not just about copper. It's 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 all the LME traded metals and uh, in general. But uh, you know, copper floated to copper and lithium um, floated to the top of every discussion. Mm. And uh, you know, in terms of of commodities that you know, and so that floated at the top of every discussion. And you know, what we need in terms of you know what what we're generally calling battery metals or or you know you know climate change metals uh or we're floating through the top of every count conversation and so you know particularly around copper i mean the next couple years look okay look balanced and but then after that i mean it is it is really quite astounding when you look at um you know the supply demand fundamentals and and, you know, I went and attended the Wood McKenzie seminar, and they were talking about, look, here's our baseline. This is without any, you know, investment in a green future. We can't meet it. And then if we mm-hmm. add on this trying to achieve one and a half degree temperature change, it doesn't even, like, it just it becomes sort of laughable. And then you add on top of that, you know, issues like, okay, well, we're, you know, we're, limiting uh metals from from russia and um you know russia's you know russia's large largest by landmass country in the world it's got a fair bit of uh mining uh that occurs plus mining potential there as well right so right. um you know it, it's a bit of a perfect storm and and i think that um you know it it it's a very it's a very simple investment thesis right now in terms of, of, of copper equities because copper equities have been beaten up a fair bit. The copper price is actually held okay, all things considered. 
um, and the future is incredibly positive in the copper space. It's a it's a simple investment thesis, Paul. But I maybe push back a little bit that the jurisdictional um, uh, perceptions of where the copper is being produced is getting a little bit trickier. I mean, not only with this news that Cadelco potentially will increase premiums for its product to Europe, uh, also Chile placing a new sliding scale royalty uh, for, you know, miners in its country. I just kind of, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to Cadelco in Chile's copper market, but does that lean a more competitive advantage for investment dollars for companies outside of Chile, even in North America, U S Canada, such as casino, when you don't have such, um, I guess bureaucracy, and I mean, obviously, you're going to have a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, there's always going to be governmental risk, but uh, certainly not to the extent that we're seeing out of Chile right now. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's you know interesting you say that because it's like oh well, you know Yukon is like low levels of bureaucracy, um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> Canada, yeah, but but I mean this is what's happening right now. I mean because you're you're seeing. Um, I mean, where where is their copper? I mean, the first thing about copper is that it's different than gold. It tends to be in these these zones, and right. So if you draw sort of a line through North and South America, you'll find like all the coppers along that line, right? Mm-hmm. So your Argentina, your Chile, your a little bit Ecuador, and then you move up into Arizona and British Columbia, and then the Yukon, right? So I mean, this is sort of where all these big copper mines are at least in, in North and South America. And, you know, you just, let's, let's run through the countries. I mean, Argentina obviously has historically been quite challenging. Uh, Chile, I mean, Chile has been, everyone loves Chile, but the challenge with Chile is that so much of, of the GDP of that country comes from the copper mines. It's, it, it's a, a well that they can continue to go back to, and this is what you're seeing with, with that, uh, that royalty. Ecuador, developing country, you know, maybe some potential there. But again, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice as well. The U.S., I mean, I, I'm, I'm shocked that every time the president changes in, in Washington, copper mines, you know, <laughs> that were imminently going to be built, get shut down, and then, you know, it changes again and they start from the get-go. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's the politics in the U.S. around mining is is quite challenging. And so, you know, Canada suddenly pops up as looking pretty good. And I mean, that's why I think you've seen, I mean, if you look at, obviously, we've got Rio, you know, investing in ourselves, you've, you've had, uh, you know, Newmont make some big investments just south of us in, in northern British Columbia, you've got Newcrest, who, you know, with Red Chris, um, you know, you're you're increasingly seeing large mining companies, you know, come back to Canada and say, you know, ten years ago it, it was well, Canada's too bureaucratic. Now it's like everyone has caught up and exceeded Canada in the, in the bureaucracy, so it it doesn't look so bad anymore. And, uh, is there anything else that you learned out of LME Week uh, regarding the copper, just general metals market that maybe caught your attention that was news to you? Um, you know, I, I think that lithium was the other big one. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was surprised. I mean, not that I, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not selling my own stock with that one, but, uh, you know, lithium, lithium was, was a big one as well. Although the one thing they flagged and I, this is the first time I'd heard about this was that, you know, there are these, uh, like lithium ion, there's sodium ion batteries and there's, there's a potential, I mean, again, this is the one reason that I do like copper is that there's really not a replacement. Aluminum works in certain circumstances, but not all. Mm-hmm. Whereas on these batteries, if the prices get too high, you just move over to different battery um, chemistries. And, you know, they're getting developed and they're already, you know, in, in, in the works just as a you know, competitive alternative to lithium ion. Okay. Uh, Paul, uh, 
Always appreciate your time. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be some important news out of Western Copper and Gold here in the coming weeks, definitely before year's end. Um, you know, so we'll be paying close attention to that, and hopefully you and I will be chatting uh, as well here in the next coming weeks. Um, but appreciate your time. Thanks for the insight, not only with what's happening with Casino, the work with Rio Tinto, but also a little bit of insight from LME Week. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Trevor. And uh, yeah, no, it's uh, the next two, three months are going to be very interesting. Yeah, that sounds like it. All right, that's your update from Western Copper and Gold, everybody. Again, trading on the TSX and the NYSE American with WRN. They are a longtime sponsor. I'm also a longtime shareholder. And that's a wrap here this weekend. We'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.